Guys, welcome to The Ground Floor, the podcast where we ask successful people exactly how they did it. Uh, our guest today is a good friend of mine. We have Akash Mehta, who, after working his way up through companies like Estee Lauder and Dior, has now co-founded, along with his sister, the company Fable & Main, which is a hair wellness company. And he's also the founder and host of the Founded Beauty podcast. So, Akash, welcome. Thank you so nice much for having you. me. Thanks, guys. How you doing? Very good, yeah. yeah. Even better now I'm here. Oh, that's what we like. <laughs> um, so obviously, as you know, the premise of the podcast is to go into people and ask them about exactly kind of the practical steps of how they got where they got. So if you sort of take a few minutes as to sort of your background and how you got started with Fable and Main and what you were doing before. Yeah, definitely. So uh, Fable and Main launched about two years ago in the pandemic. But uh, the idea, I guess you could say, originated from my own childhood memories with my grandma. So born and raised in an Indian family, uh, Ayurveda, which is, what for, for people listening who don't know, Ayurveda is a very ancient Indian sort of science, natural science. Mm. It dates back four to 5,000 years. And it's definitely passed down by generations. So my grandma used to, um, yeah, usually come from India with these ingredients and herbs and massage them to sort of heal things, whether it was like help your hair growth or help you calm or relax or if you're ill. So I was around these like wellness potions from a very young age, but I didn't really think much about it. Um, and then uh, I think fast forward like quite 20, you know, 20 bit years, uh, you started to look at your own self and started to realize things like, oh, you're having a bit of hair loss, you're having a bit of that, and you lose touch to those traditions that you grew up with. Mm. But um also realizing you're quite, you know, you, you get busy and you want to sometimes find things in mainstream stores because you don't have the luxury of always like having those ingredients and finding them, especially these Indian ingredients. Like if I went to New York, I would never be able to find them in any like local grocery store. Yeah. Right. So I was like, why isn't these Ayurvedic ancient traditions celebrating our Indian culture found in mainstream stores and beauty stores, but also modernized, you know, with, with science and alluring aromas. So me and my sister kind of were thinking and we were like, there is a huge gap in the market for a clean, conscious, cultural brand. And we want it, but no one seems to be doing it. So let's do it in hair care. So that's how it started, um, the actual birth of Fable. But a little bit about my kind of career before that. I worked in beauty for quite a few years. So I worked, at, as you said, at Dior, Estee Lauder. So I got to learn a lot, build my kind of, I guess, my inner street cred, right? Yeah, I wanted yeah. to first make sure I felt like I knew the industry myself um, before I jumped into creating a own beauty brand. Um, but I'm an engineer as well for four years. So that was a bit of a pivot, right? From engineering yeah. to beauty, but it worked out now. Was beauty always a passion for you? I think it was always a passion. I think it's always been something I've loved. My father hasn't been in the beauty industry for 40 years. So I've just seen it from a lens um, of being like in boardroom meetings. It's like five, six years old, sitting kind of like after school with my dad. And it's always, I always heard beauty terms and the industry was quite um, very attractive to me growing up. But I never felt like I didn't really understand like my career would be also led by my passion. I thought my career has been going to be led with what I'm good at. Mm. Um, that's kind of how I was conditioned in school. So for me as a math and physics nerd, I was sort of like conditioned into by my school to like, hey, you should you know, do engineering or physics or yeah. math. This is what you've been studying. Not don't do business. I don't do beauty business because that wasn't something that was, I guess, you could even really study at university at that time. So I did you know, go down that path of engineering and thought that was my reality. But actually it was in my second year uh, where I failed my second year and I had to like take a year out to think about, to retake the exams, but think about okay, like I got 100% A-star grades my whole career, my whole life, you know, GCSE, 10 A-stars, all that kind of stuff. Ten, you got 10 A-stars at GCSE? <laughs> Five A-stars. I'm just gloss over casually that, saying. No, I was a bit 10 of- 10 A-stars. I was, I was good at my, my exams growing up. I did 5 A-levels, got all A-stars. I, wow. I, I was good. But um, yeah, reality check was from going from that kind of student to failing a second year was quite a wake-up call, quite scary for me because I spent so many of my young years studying and I put so much, I guess, emphasis and importance to exams. Yeah. Um, Why do you think you went from 10A stars to failing? Was there something that happened or anything that triggered that? Honestly, it was a mixture of two things. I think it was um, engineering is a lot harder than anything like GCSE and stuff. Like in GCSE A-levels, you can pretty much like look at the formulas of like past papers and know what the exams will be. And you mm. can kind of like just wing it. With engineering, like every question is so new. It's kind of thinking about how you process information, how you can create new solutions for that. So you have to, of course, study, but you have to really know, not just memorize. And I was a memorizer. So I think that was definitely the reality of why I wasn't the best at that. But I just wasn't passionate. And I think for me, it was in my year of failing, which at that time was like the the lowest of my of my life at that time. 
it was actually the biggest blessing looking back now because I can now look at that and say that was an opportunity to actually go deeper within myself, take out all that projection that was given to me as a child of by my teachers, by my my parents and everyone saying this is what's going to be making you happy and successful is if you get these grades and if you go to these mm. universities. Instead, it was a moment for I was alone. All my friends went to the year ahead and I was the one that had to deal with this. And I thought, why not dedicate my life to my passion? Um, and at that time, it was hard because I didn't know what my passion was because I was for so many years doing this. Um, but I think I look back at the fact that, wait, I do have this memories of my dad's you know, beauty business and he still you know, was doing it at the time. So just speaking to him and I felt that comfort of, yeah, like I could do that. And I love that. And I think why not dedicate something that, okay, I don't have a degree in it. I don't have any experience in it at that time. Um, but let's go for it. Did you experience much pushback from your parents if that's sort of the route you were going down, even if your dad was already in beauty? Was there any sort of resistance I, there? I think, no, I th I'm very lucky with my parents. Um, they're not the traditional, if I can say so, like Indian parents, where yeah. it's like, you study law, you study engineering, you study economics, like- Or medicine. Or medicine, all the above. Um, they were actually very, very um, open to like me following my passion. It was, it was myself. It was my, I would say even my school, that was, you know, my teachers and my my my, my fellow like colleague like students. Um, I just felt like we were all conditioned. I say that word quite a lot here, but to that is if you're successful is what university you go to, what grades you get to, and that's what I believe. I was in the same school for eleven years, so I think it was. And my parents were obviously happy for me to pursue that path because who wouldn't be proud of, I guess, of a child going to a good university and getting good grades? Yeah. And especially an Indian parent, they do want that. Don't get me wrong. But they never forced me. Um, and I think it goes back to my dad, right? Like my dad is uh, in the beauty industry and that's quite unconventional for that kind of generation of Indian family, you know, to have a, a like most of my, most my Indian friends' parents would not be in the beauty industry. Mm. Um, so I think that openness was definitely something that made me more, um, I guess, uh, yeah, I'm more open to going into that, 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 that path as opposed to maybe let's try another degree, a conventional degree. And you started it with your sister and you're yeah. running it with your sister to this day. Yeah. Was she in the beauty industry before that? So she, after her university, um, she went to work for my dad. So she actually didn't get the corporate experience. She got more like the family experience. Right. But yes, in the beauty industry. So I think we've both been such beauty like um, lovers from a young age. And actually, fun fact with my dad as well, like my dad studied engineering, electrical electronic engineering, same as mine. So I think that was also really comforting to know that he did that transition. Mm. So I can do that transition. Yeah. Mm. So sometimes I laugh. I'm like, I just copycatted my father. Yeah, because he did the exact same. And he failed as well. So like literally yeah. did the exact same thing. It's really freaky. But, um, but I think, yeah. So I think he, I was sometimes jealous of my sister to having that kind of experience of being mentored by my dad in a business sense. Mm. Um, but at the same time, I think that's where we make a perfect duo today. She was mentored by my dad. I was mentored by some of the industry giants like LVMH and Estee Lauder. And together creating this company, we sort of have this duality of, of that kind of yin and yang of, okay, let's like use those both as an advantage. We've had a fair few guests that have worked with their, uh, with their friends or with their family. Mm. And, I, and I like asking this every time that it does happen because I do think it's a different experience every time. But what would you say about that experience? Because obviously there's all the horror stories of working with friends or family. It can go really, really badly. Mm. Um, I think it's better if you're partnered in a business like you are with your sister, as yeah. opposed to hiring your friends or family, which can probably be stickier. Um, but sort of talk to me a little bit about how you feel about that and, and maybe what you might say to people that are thinking of doing the same thing. Yeah, so listen, it's not the easiest by any means. Uh, I mean, it, there is so many pros and there are inevitably cons that could be associated with that. I think the pros i like to start with the positive yeah. is like you have potentially with friendships or um siblings or partners you have that kind of innate trust in each other you have also history of years like i've got you know my whole life of experience with my sister so that definitely helps um so a you want to know if you go into business bed with someone you that you trust that person i think it's very important um and number two i think you have that open communication and and potentially ways that you know a bit more about each other that you can probably adapt uh, and probably make better judgments when it comes to certain business moves as well, mm. because you know that person very like very well inside out. Do you sort of allocate different decisions based around your different areas of experience? Absolutely. I think like that's like, something like I'm, you know, she's not much of a, like I'm more decisive. So I'm the one who ends up taking on the role of like the CEO and one that kind of approves everything, even her budget. Um, and then she's a lot more creative. So I'm the one who says, like, let her have a moment. If she wants to not come to the meetings or come to the office and then wants to work at 3 a.m., that's when her creative juices are flowing. 
let that be. So mm-hmm. I think I, because of her personality traits, I let that shine. But um, yeah, but then yeah, going to the cons, I think like there are, you know, you could probably get um, kind of short tempered or like you can get heated quite quickly because of that kind of that lack of like I guess barriers of just yeah. like I just want to tell you what it is. Mm. That's often when you fight with your siblings. So you have to make sure you have certain healthy barriers. You don't also spend too much time together because, like, say, at like Christmas, you don't even talk about business. Like certain things like that, you, yeah. know, you have to set those um, moments apart. And I think also um, just make sure you don't like you really understand like if something does go wrong with the business, that shouldn't hopefully affect your relationship as as a sibling or as your loved one. Um, and one way I really would recommend people when they're thinking about going into business with someone they know already. Um, is setting those ground rules from the beginning and not being shy to address that before you start. So mm. I had this really uncomfortable conversation with my sister with a legal um, person attending where we talked about all the permutations of like what could go wrong, what yeah. could happen, like if she has a partner, if I have a partner, if that person you know coerces or changes our mind and wants you to like do something or if you want, one of us wants to sell the business earlier than the other, like all this stuff. We had to like literally brainstorm all of those potential outcomes and make safety nets for the business, not for our own egos, yeah. but for what's healthiest for that. Because in the day, very quickly, like now with Fable and Maine, it's no longer me and my sister's business. It's it's so many stakeholders' business. It's my team that's growing every day. It's my customers. It's my retailers. And I have to protect all of them. At the uh, what, beginning, I'm sorry, go on. I was going to say, at the beginning, obviously you mentioned your grandmother, that was the influence, and she was the one that was kind of making all these potions and, and remedies yeah. and things like that. When you first had the idea to start, was it a case where you went to your grandmother and said, right, we want, we're looking to do this, can you give us the recipe? Can you make, did she make the first batch? Like, how did the first or, sort of origin of it come about? That's no, a really good question. So actually, and one big factor that I think I should mention that kind of inspired the brand is, so both of my, unfortunately both my grand. Uh, grandparents well my grand my grand one of my grandpas passed away before I was born the other one quite was quite young so both my grandmas were very close to me growing up mm. and then unfortunately both of them passed away while I was at Dior so in a very similar moment of time so it was actually one of the reasons why we created Fable and Maine was as a homage to them and their like their story their legacy so unfortunately yeah none of them know that we've done this in their name and in their reign so it's quite like um that's a bit sad but at the same time those memories um, are so strong that they really do influence the brand's creation. And then, of course, we do have certain elements of like, we have like certain written recipes um, that she's done and she's passed down. Like, you know, we've inherited all these little like um, trinkets Mm. that have got a lot of these potions. So when you go on our website, you'll see like, that's like my grandma's turmeric chai recipe. And this is the hair oil formula she uses plus some new things. So it's always inspired by my grandma. um, And I think that's what people can feel when, when, yeah, experiencing the brand. Love that. Absolutely yeah. love that. So the first product, the yes. first iteration, you come up with it with your sister? Do you approach sort of a team of scientists? Because I think, yeah. I'm sure there's a lot of people. I mean, I've, I've even spoken to people in the past where they're, you know, they're thinking of making a little sort of hair solution or a little oil solution. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they'll put it in their own little bottles and they'll give it to their friends or family. You know, kind of like everyone, I think, has those kind of home remedies. Definitely. How do you take it from kind of bedroom to boardroom, you know, in that yeah. way? Like so the first thing. I'll say there's a couple of things there. And anyone listening as well, thinking about creating a beauty brand, potentially these are some useful um, kind of anecdotes and facts. So... Definitely, like, I think about seven, eight years ago, even like five years ago, a lot of the beauty brand founders I interview in my podcast, a lot of them have started in that sort of like garage. I created this mask, I created this cream, um, mainly because the barriers to entry to go to labs with very little funding were very high. Like the minimum order quantities to make something would be like ten to 20,000. And wow. to get a sample, you have to pay like even a thousand just to get one sample. Then it gets cheaper as you make more, like all this stuff which is why you had to rely on going in the garage yeah. and making it yourself. For us, of course, there was a mixture of that where we were building these um, kind of recipes in the kitchen because that's Ayurveda is really, really about less is more. But at the same time, we, when we were, this is in 2019, 2018, you know, there were a lot more labs coming into the mix that were open to these sort of new indie brands that would have high potential and they would want to get them in early. So they would potentially decide to like even give you formulas without any upfront costs with the hope or letter of intent that if you like it, you then stick with us. Mm. And, you know, if you start dangling carrots, like I think Sephora is interested in us and stuff, they even want to go further and sure. they'll, they'll give you a team. 
So you don't have to invest so much more. So we did actually start quite quickly with certain labs because the barriers are now being lower. And that helps a lot because you, you have to think about, yes, you have an amazing formulas you can make in the kitchen, but when it comes to actually creating products that will last on the shelf, you have to have all these elements that you won't have access to it and you're not a chemist by any means. So I think that's important to not take too long today to go to labs because now you can. In terms of finding labs for mm. anyone listening, is it a case of, you know, just Google is your friend or is there certain kind of specific things to look for or search for for yeah. people that might want it's, to do it themselves? It's a good question. I will say Google is quite hard to find good labs because labs don't do the very best job at marketing themselves. So right. it's not like an agency where you can type in like Fable and Main PR agency and then probably pops up and then you find the one they use. If I type, if you type in Fable and Main hair or lab, I don't think you'll find who we use. So I do think there's a mixture of um, going to um, potentially there's a lot of different um, kind of uh, summits or trade shows. Uh, they have some like uh, Cosmoprof and different lab ones. Um, we might be going to one in a few weeks in, in Japan. Like there's some all over the world and a lot of the labs go showcase themselves and they also show the brands that are in there. So you can right. pass by and say, oh, they're showing sold the Janeiro, they must be creating, at least creating one or two or maybe all of their products, right? Yeah. And that's very important to know because most brands don't have just one lab. So we have three labs, for example. So you might have certain SKUs, as SKUs are basically like individual like products that, um, that can come in different forms. Those might be with um, certain labs and other SKUs with other labs. So I would say one advice is, yeah, going to trade shows and you can get a much deeper enriched amount and then you give your business card and you get a few. The second one is, yeah, there are some on Google that you can just find that have good SEO and they're usually the biggest and the best. Um, but you have to spend a lot of time just weeding them out and finding them. But the third other best way is, you know, don't feel hesitant to DM a founder. Um, often, this is why I created Founded Beauty is because the founders don't have much following. Um, the, the brand has. So sometimes you'll see this brand that's got 10 million followers, but the founder is like 600 followers mm. and not no one knows yeah. them. Uh, I can name you. 10 big beauty brands and you wouldn't know the founder. Um, and for everyone listening, Founder Beauty, as I said, is your podcast. Oh, yeah. But what it is, is that you interview founders, founders of beauty companies. Yeah, only founders, founder to founder. Um, and now we've got nearly 200 founders that I've interviewed. And I think that's really important because I think knowing that the barriers to entry to also talk to and listen to founders, I think can really help people feel they're less lonely in that starting process. Because mm -hmm. I can tell you founders will help another founder because they've been there. They know the struggle and they've been helped. So, you know, if you DM me, I'll share with you my labs. If you, um, you know, DM a few others, you, you can make your own list just from that. And otherwise, you know, there are other ways to, if you, they don't reply to DM, go to some summits and listen to them, you know, pay $100 to speak, uh, to, to listen at a beauty summit and after go grab them, mm. right? But so there's, there is a lot of ways that people can actually realize that, um, yeah, is in their reach. Grassroots it. Yeah. And what criteria were you were you sort of looking at when you actually decided which um, which labs to go with? It's a great question. I think for me, it was a mixture of a couple of things. One is the the type of lab um, and the kind of history of clients. I think wanting to make sure they have a really good report of great clients, great work, because that's important. Yeah. Um, so I wasn't listen, listening. Like a brand, there's also labs that are startups and labs that are like beasts, right? And mm. sometimes the startups are a bit riskier. The beasts are maybe even even riskier because they have so many clients and a little fish like you might not be taken attention of. So, and probably more expensive, right? And more expensive. Um, or even less because they've got economies of scale, right? They've mm. got all the machines. So there are different, you know, there's all these options to think about. I think it was about finding a medium-sized business a lab that, you know, we could work with that would have a good attention to. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, we would um, have ability to grow. Because if you go with a small one, you don't want to change your lab within like six months if your brand has gone from this to this. Mm. So like with Fable, we grew so quickly and thank God like my lab could go from 5,000 units to 100,000 units within that same six months. Whereas some other labs might be like, listen, we don't even have a, a run or a line that can do that. And for people to understand how a lab is sort of positioned, you have lines. So lines are basically assembly units and they're quite like, you can just imagine this like cardboard, imagine like this like, big big like um warehouse empty warehouse when you have lines they come in and they roll they all have wheels on them so they usually like um, they would change them depending on the product or the type of how many units and then they would slot them in so like i might have a fable and main line run for two days running fifty thousand hair oils but then if i'm the next day after that they switch the lineup to do another brand's spf cream right right because uh, labs have to have multiple brands yeah Certain brands that are so powerful will have their own line always running. So that's just their line. Mm -hmm. 
certain brands, um, yeah, will will only be able to get one slot at a at the lab's dis- disposal because they will prioritize other brands. But if you miss something, like it happens a lot, like you are responsible for certain things. So there's different ways to work with a lab. You can do full turnkey, partial turnkey. And what turnkey means is, is like how much of the whole process do they do for you? Mm. So full turnkey basically means you basically have the lab doing everything for you. They will order the components, find the packaging, do everything. And they'll just add that little extra amount to each unit. So instead of paying, paying 39 pence for a unit, they, pay, they charge you 50 pence. And that's like their markup per unit. But they handle everything. You could do partial turnkey, so part they will help and part you do. So that means you've got to provide certain things. Because you might say, you know what, they have preferred suppliers of bottle glasses and they're only quoting me this, but I've seen this amazing supplier from a trade show I went to. They don't want to work with them because that's not how this lab works. But I want to say, look, I found this bottle I love. It's at a great price and it's cheaper for me because I'm buying it from the source. I want to give it to you. So I want to do personal turnkey. So you've got to use my oil bottles, but you do the rest. You do oh, the so you can still supply them stuff You can still use. supply it. But the issue with that comes, there's so much in there where you could be like, if you're a day late to when they need it by, and they're not going to, they're going to say, well, we've given your slot to someone else. And mm. then the next available slot is what, in three months. Okay. But then what can happen is your ingredients have expired and this and that. So, it's an. It can be a lot of logistical work working yeah. with a lab. In terms of um, the finance side of things, yeah. so uh, down to the sort of nitty gritty, how much did you start with, and how much uh, was that allocated to which sector, and and, yeah. and what was that? Was that sort of savings from your career in beauty? Was that sort of family loan, business loan? So I didn't have um, a typical business plan, which is probably not the best, but at the same time, like. It's worked go, out. I right. wouldn't go back and change it because this is sort of yeah. like startup. You know, yeah. Like if I felt it, I felt it. And I didn't really know. So, you know, you don't know how fast you will grow. So even what you create in your first year, if I based it on my 10,000 units, then I would have only projected this amount of sales and business and funding. But thank God I kept it a bit like skeleton because when we went viral on TikTok after three months, I had to change the whole model and mm. raise a you know, fundraiser with my, with my family a bit more. So what we did is, so Fable and Main is fully self-funded. That's number one. It's um, funded by, yeah, my father is 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 funding it. And um, this has been a big blessing for us because we can have this ability to not go out and raise investment yeah. and instead just rely on that. And also, like, my dad has worked so hard from literally coming from Uganda, EDI meantime, you know, exiled out, and then from 50 pounds in his pocket, literally selling in Wembley Market to building his own company. Mm-hmm. He, um, yeah, he's worked so hard for it. I think he's still instilled that hard work and discipline. So it's not like we've got this open check from him. We still have to prove to him what we're spending, how we're getting it back. These are all loans at the end of the day. But at the end of the day, I prefer trusting in my dad to get loaned in a bank mm, or sure. an investor where I give a chunk yeah, of the company away. So I've managed to do this. And this but is just before you go yeah. on there, because I think that's an, an important point. Yeah. If someone, uh, obviously a lot of people won't be in that kind of situation exactly. where they're fortunate enough to have that. If they don't have that, would you recommend for something like beauty, going the investor route, would you recommend the bank route uh, yeah. or sort of saving and doing it yourself? So beauty is sort of weirder and weirder each year. It changes. Um, more or less, like this is just like a very basic rule book that I've spoken to so many founders I know roughly. To start a beauty brand, like you need at least 300,000 pounds. It sounds like weird, but like generally speaking, there's a website cost, there's initial units, there's initial marketing, um, all that stuff, yeah. maybe one or two team. This is minimum. But then if you do well and you have a strong retail partner, even if it's just one, um, and you, what term, depending on what your brand is, it could be like a Whole Foods brand, it could be like a, um, a Selfridges or a Sephora, Sephora brand you then need to potentially have more capitals to scale. And then that means more sampling, more units, and this mm. and that. So sometimes you could even need one, one or 1. 1.5 million to start a good beauty brand today that's wow. here to stand. So of course, that means significant capital raising. High barrier to entry. So there is that, yeah, exactly. Now, there are different ways to do it. You could create a brand very small, just have and sell out every three months and keep on fundraising it. There's even other models. Like one of my friends has got a beauty brand that is a dropship model. So it's sort of like Kickstarter. Like yeah. you basically have every pun pays up front and then you make exactly what's needed and they wait six months because they're willing to wait and then you deliver the product and that's sort of like a more even sustainable way so there is many different ways don't get me wrong but on an average term this is sort of like the typical rule book i've been seeing as as an average now of course if you're doing the first initial friends and family potentially right or 300k i always say 
best to like not give a too much of your company away at the beginning because beauty brands can grow really quickly and then have crazy multiples and great evaluations. So usually on your net revenue, net sales, you can get a 5x evaluation. Yeah. So if you're looking to sell, the last thing you want is you've built the brand in three years and you're given 20% away for 25K or 50K and you're yeah. going to be like, why did I do that? So um, I would say, generally speaking, friends and family is your first bet, people that believe in you and um, they can invest in that. And you know, it doesn't have to be done. You don't have to raise everything in one go and then say that's it for a bit. You can keep on continue, having an open raise. Mm. And then I think once you start getting a good retailer, get initially good sales, maybe you first start D2C and then you launch with a retailer. Maybe before you get into that retailer, you then have initial couple of months revenue. You can then potentially produce a good potential run rate with that. You can then also say, look, I've got this evaluation now, which is a 10x or 8x, because I believe now with the potential Sephora, the potential retailer, we're going to grow even more. Um, and I've got my pipeline of products. You could probably then raise your proper full round, yeah. but not give so much away because you can probably then even, even give it. For it. Like I've invested in a lot of beauty brands um, that have only done three months of revenue and they're evaluating them sometimes, sometimes at 20 million, 25 million. Oh, wow. So it's possible, okay. yeah. right? With just two, three months of revenue. Wow. In terms of retailers, because obviously you're in Selfridges, Fable Domains in Selfridges. Um, I think to the average person, and even to me, I have no idea how does it work, you know, for you to have a product that you've made to now be in a shop, a physical place like Selfridges that everyone knows. Yeah. How does that work? So retail is very interesting. Um, there are different forms of retail, right? You have e-retail and physical retail. E-retail is online. It's a lot more easier. Usually the time for a brand to go on online is shorter period couple of months and they can set you up, they just make the product page and they get you the whole products in the warehouse and it's done. A lot of retailers prefer to start online and then go to give you a brick and mortar space because they want to show that does the business have potential? Yeah. Is it resonating with their customers before they decide to give you that kind of holy grail space? Um, but sometimes you can launch both in hand. Um, sometimes if you are also launching exclusively with that retailer, you should negotiate to do that because it's like sort of your main hit into the company. Mm. So we launched with Sephora in the US day one in store and online. And we were kind of in the kitchen with them, which is sort of like we built it with them for about six, seven months. And then they felt it was like a favorite domain was a Sephora baby. Yeah, yeah. So we could negotiate like 300 stories at launch and this and that. And how did that relationship come about with Sephora? So that's a really good one as well, because that again, everything is always possible without you realizing like, yes, you can have connection stuff. And I had the connection of the CEO of Sephora. I had an email from my CEO Dior. I did not use it. I instead, we just LinkedIn messaged a junior hair merchant with the concept and a very, very, very basic brand book, not even a sample at that time. They were like, we love this concept. We haven't got an Indian hair brand. When can you come to San Francisco to present it in a bit more detail? And we were like, we can come like in a week. We're, we're coming. Like we didn't actually like, we just booked it straight away. We were like, we're, we're already there. Um, so we literally <laughs> went straight away and um, we presented it a bit more in detailed. And then they were like, we love it. Come back in a few months when you've got a sample, we'll bring the wider team in. We did that. Then we went with, to the labs, going back to that 360, went to the labs, said, hey, Sephora is interested. Like, can you work with us? They were like, sure, but this is very exciting. Cause you know, you show them that receipt, that email. And then, yeah, we, we managed to get in. What? Is the decision because I'm, I'm I find that so interesting that mm. you said you had the number for the yeah. CEO of Sephora, yeah, yeah, and you didn't use it, yeah. I, I feel like so many people would be like, "Why? That's you've worked, you've earned that connection by working in the industry. Why would yeah. you not use it? What made you go the other way?" So yeah, so I had this email. I think I think the reality was is I wasn't afraid to use it if I needed to. Right. I just didn't think it was the first thing that was best because I've been in companies and I put myself in the Sephora merchants. I put, I put myself in every person that we could interact with shoes. I said, hey, if I was at CEO and I got a random guy messaging me with a small brand that's not worth any of his time, would he really reply and would he really like do anything? Mm, potentially, but it's unlikely. Yeah. Even if I got a stellar recommendation from someone, it feels forced. Mm. Two, if you were the hair merchant and someone very, very senior told you, here, this is on your desk, review it, you're less excited because you were told it, you didn't find it. Mm. So I thought, I've, and having worked my way up, I, you know, I was an intern and junior manager, manager, I've worked my way up in these companies, I've been at all the levels. I felt like I, if I was in that position, I wouldn't appreciate that. So I thought, let's at least give it a go. And if there's no reply, we'll try another avenue. If there's no reply, try one more avenue. And then eventually there is this, this, safety blanket of this email that we mm. could pursue um and that's why i didn't do it yeah out of the 300k that you think is sort of the minimum to start with yeah. what's the split between 
product, branding, marketing budget, and in terms of marketing, what marketing avenues were you using? So, okay, so going back to also the finance question. So you, generally speaking, as a rule of thumb, you should have your marketing budget should be roughly 20% of your revenue forecast. So let's say you're, you intend to do a million, you should be spending, like in beauty, this is the average standard, you should spend 200K in marketing. Right. Try not to do 20, 30% sometimes, but if you're in high growth, but don't do too much more. I've seen brands do like 70, 50% because they just want to get a lot of revenue and then exit in a year or two. But if you're starting, no. Um, so that's like one easy way. So let's say um, I intend with the 300K to make a million dollars. I I will, I think 200K is quite a lot at that point. So maybe 200K doesn't do that. At the beginning though, like when you're doing the initial first amount, I think a, a lot of that is quite these these one fixed costs that usually you won't need to do that much again. Right. Meaning those fixed costs would be a website cost that you know will be a big investment first, but it's done. Uh, it might be um, certain like recruitment cost fees, hire some people. Yeah. It might be um, your office space first, or certain things, uh, the first samples and trademark costs, legal costs, all those stuff are important. Like you might need to get your brand registered by all these different countries, mm. but then once it's done, you're, you're solid for a while. So then I think of that 300K, maybe there is like, I would spend, I can tell you like, uh, my I, I am an engineer and coder uh, as well, albeit a failed one, I still know some stuff. Um, so I did code and build the first website. Um, while I was in Africa on a safari with 4G, oh, wow. I was building it because we realized a Vogue article was going out in two days earlier before I launched and the website wasn't live and I was like coding. <laughs> I have a Just photo coding yeah. with 4G hotspot. Surprisingly good 4G yeah. hotspot in the Mara. Out of interest, by the way, yeah. why did you decide to do that as opposed to using like a builder like Shopify or Squarespace? I think um, uh, save costs and uh, not fully save costs, but we did use certain platforms, don't get me wrong, but I was doing a lot more of the kind of build on that. Right. But uh, it was mainly, yeah, to save costs, but also just because I, I just felt I could do it and, like, yeah. why not? Like, And I, I at that time, uh, there's too much stuff I've done, which doesn't make sense for the podcast, but I did have an agency at the time. Okay. Uh, and when I left Dior, they wanted me to continue working for them. Yeah. So I built an agency where I started um, doing work for, like, L'Oreal, LVMH, Pooj, a lot of big brands. And uh, I was even, some of my clients I was building websites for, so okay. I was doing it on the side. So yeah. I kind of felt like that was something that I, I wanted to do. And that website did great. It, it gave us, you know, it gave us good revenue. And then later I could afford a six-figure website when mm. the business started mm. deserving it. So you might need to do it in a year or two, another website, because there will be some links and acts that you need to improve. But generally you could spend like 15 to 20K or even 25K on your first website and that would yeah. be solid. What do you, you know? get for a six-figure website that you don't get for a 15, 20K it's website? It's mainly design. Because a lot of the advertising of companies like Squarespace or Shopify is yeah. that, you know, for 10, 20, 30 quid a month, mm. you can have a full-scale professional Skip website. Template. So what's the difference between that and then a 15, 20K one and then a six-figure one? So those a 15, tiers. 15, 20K is really more basic for the, the, the back end, the integrations, the, the, to your warehouse, to, you know, that's a lot more work and needed. Like I need to have, like, for example, there's so many, uh, not for this, and I can, how I went on and on about labs, there's so much more I'm not going to do now about <laughs> websites. But, you know, like if I'm in the US, I have to do my tax filing for a state. So I need a plugin for that called like Avalara. Then I have like like different uh, backend softwares for my warehouse, like Minsoft or different ones I have to plug in and pay for. And then you have all your payment plugins like Stripe and PayPal. All that stuff is still like some kind of work of a tech person to help you build that all in and integrate that with your front engine. Mm -hmm. So that 15, 20K is predominantly that and then some basic design that you would want to custom and do. The 100K one is more for a lot more SKU stock management. So you upgrade, like you wouldn't go to the Magentos of the business, but you'd go like pretty high up to some really, if I'm dealing with a lot of um, 3PL, meaning a lot of logistics. So like my warehouse has to deliver stock to all the retailers, uh, my customers, all that. There's a lot of, and, and we're doing, you know, hundreds and thousands of units of sales. That's a lot of numbers and data. So mm. you can't have a basic Squarespace website for that. You need more super robust plugins um, and, and softwares. But then also the design. The, honestly, a lot of it is design, like just to get like a three-person graphic design team and working on amazing graphics and moving elements. And you spend a lot of money. It, it, and that's where a lot of the cost gets eaten up. But honestly, it's important to do that at one point because it does separate like certain businesses from each other. Yeah. And when you have that experience, it's a store at the end of the day. Like your D2C needs to feel like, you know, you, would, you wouldn't spend... You wouldn't go cheap on a storefront sure. if mm. you had it on Oxford Street, right? Yeah, so yeah. this one should be beautiful if you can make it. I'm with you. And so if we go to your sort of day one when you actually launched with Sephora, what yeah. was that like and how successful was that? 
Yeah, so Sephora day one was very interesting for us because it was day one of the pandemic. Like when it, when I say okay. pandemic, I mean like lockdown because uh, it was <laughs> wow, in April. Okay. April bad 20, timing. Okay. April 2020, bad timing. But technically good, good timing for us yeah. because salons were closed and our brand is all rooted in like hair care, hair wellness at home. So that way was good. Just it was a bit sad because, you know, as a brand, you do invest. And going back to that brick and mortar, the store question, you have to invest in certain things. Like if you want to decide to go into stores, there are certain upfront costs you have to cover as a mm. brand. And that's expensive. So if I want to have a branded shelf strip or like a, a tester stand, that's my cost. And yeah. if I have 500 stores to do that, that's like, even if it's 10 quid, that's like 500 pounds times 10. That's 5,000 pounds I've got to spend, right? So at the initial part, we had some initial cost for our stores and then all the stores were closed. And I was like, okay, great. So that kind of is redundant. Did you think, by the way, just quickly, did yeah. you think about, a decision to maybe hold back if it was in the middle. I mean, because launching in the pandemic is, so is bearing, crazy. Bearing in mind, um, we were signing six to eight months before and then we sent the stock f- six weeks. You've got to send your stock like at least six weeks before due date right. and then all that stuff. So we were already sending our stock in December and okay. there was no talks of pandemic then. Yeah. Then Jan, mm. then Feb. And then if you really remember that time, like Feb, March, people still weren't sure. Yeah, yeah. It was only really suddenly where people were like, hang on, we're really it came very everything. Quickly. And there's yeah. like, store is closing tomorrow yeah so there wasn't any sense of like um opportunity to even change anything and also everyone was in the same boat so every beauty brand was suffering that but i think the beauty of the fact that we started around that time is we could adapt really quickly like we just said cool we're not going to do our events anymore we're not going to do our um sampling and our like in-store training like that will just pause we haven't spent anything yet so let's just spend all that money and budget sorry on TikTok, social media, okay. all that stuff. And I think that's what really helped the brand is we just went fully digital. And my background at Dior, Estee Lauder, I was like the global digital manager at Dior. Okay. I was in charge of social media, influencers, affiliate programs. So all that stuff, I think, was helping the brand fasten their growth a little bit at that time. Was it a lot of UGC, like user-generated content? A lot of UGC. Sort of, right. I, I'm a big fan of UGC and um, and micro nano influencers as well, but also like all like, um, and at that time it was really, really important for the brand because um, that was integrity, like to show diversity of hair care because a lot of the time we were often pigeonholed at the initial part of like, oh, well, it's an Indian hair care brand for Indian people, right? Right. And we were like educating our retailers and people that are introducing to the brand, like, no, 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 like, it's not like that's why we chose models of all ethnicities and had di- mm. diversity. But again, like you want to have real authentic feedback and testimonials that it works for people and you want to visually see it. Yeah. So I think that's where UGC was really important because as a young startup, you can afford to do a lot more UGC with a lot of variety and, uh, and mm. diversity of people mm. as opposed to like spend all your budget on that one influencer that's going to cost you like all your marketing spend yeah. in the first quarter. Yeah. 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 One thing I actually just want to touch on, which is going right back to the start almost. Yeah. Um, what actually gave you the confidence to, I suppose, realize that there was a gap in the market and a demand for your product before you invested a significant amount of capital into the business? Yeah. What sort of market research did you do? So I think there was a mixture of, the market research was quite interesting. Market research was a mix of me and my sister, just huge beauty junkies going to all the stores, not seeing an Indian hair brand, an Ayurvedic hair brand. And um, that was in these Sephora stores, for example. Um, so I think we knew we had a, we knew we had a gap in the market and an appetite because A, there wasn't anything anyone doing it. So we are the first Ayurvedic and Indian hair brand okay. ever at Sephora, which is pretty cool. Wow. Okay. Um, but also um, everyone we were interacting with, our first interview exclusive with Vogue, they were like, you know, I remember so vividly going to in one in one World Trade Center, we went into this meeting with Vogue and the, and the editor was like, you guys did it. I've been telling all my friends, we're waiting for this and you guys have really? done it. And I, that was the moment when I started realizing, I think we've got something. This person okay. speaks to all yeah. the editors and all the beauty. Yeah, yeah, that's a big compliment. And I think the retailers, look how quick it was for Sephora to say yes. Like all those stuff okay. felt like, and even like our graphic design and all these people were like, we're excited. I felt there was something there. That was a confident booster was the excitement yeah. from others. Yeah, yeah. And I think market research wise, you know, that's important. You, ha- you can have an amazing idea, but then to execute and to do it smartly, you have to have other levers you think about. So things like, okay, are we doing the right price point? Um, that was where we had similar, like clean hair care, clean uh, luxury beauty, hair, prestige hair care. Looking at all our benchmarks there, we narrowed down a few. And we kind of then like, kind of did a little bit of market research where we did some polls. We did go to people and even with our samples, we did send it to a lot of people to okay. try. Yeah. And that just gives you more confidence in yeah, the yeah. results. Yeah. Where did the name come from? Yeah, so Fable Domain came from um, 
again, throw back to my grandma and when growing up in, at home, while she would massage our hair, me and my sister, with um, a lot of these oils, she would read us stories. Right. Because often you got to let these mas- oils seep in. Mm. And it's very, very, very important for a massage to be done because when you stimulate your, your blood circulation through the act of the massage, you're increasing the anagen phase of the hair cycle, which is the hair growth phase, okay. which delivers all the essential oxygen and nutrients. So you can have an amazing product that you know, has no silicones, it gets all the benefits in, but without the massage, you're not really getting that, that blood rush. So mas- Indian head massage, hair oiling, while storytelling, because you were doing it for 20 minutes, 30 minutes, um, Fable and Main, story and hair. Yeah. And then Main also, and then the reason why we have a tiger. Yeah, Fable and Main. I can't believe I only just realized. Yeah. <laughs> known you for ages and I've never <laughs> thought about that. that. And then the, the reason for the That's tiger, great. and then also the another node and nod to the main element is we have a fund called the Fable Fund. So beyond formulating responsibly, we also are committed to helping wildlife conservation. So mm-hmm. specifically big cats and tigers being the main, the most majestic, amazing animal of India. So we um, have this fund, the Fable Fund, to help. And therefore, we wanted that main element to be very important as well. I love that. Yeah. I love that. I'm very big on animal welfare. <laughs> so that's a really big thing. Um, nice. Um, I wanted to touch on what maybe sort of the some of the harder points were. Was there anything specific that was like a really big sort of nearly didn't make it moment or a struggle that you might have been through at any point? Uh, more struggles and su- successes, I will say. Um, I will say there hasn't been one like, oh my God, I'm... I'm like in tears, I can't breathe. Like not not nothing so tragic. Think like you know, touch wood. Mm. But I will say there's been so many so many drawbacks. Like I can name like so many, but like let's to name a few. Like we printed thirty thousand cartons and it had Lauren Ibsen written on it, and and then we're like, what, what the hell? Okay. And then I have to like I get told that, and when we're about to go in our assembly <laughs> line, and they're like, if you don't get the cartons by a day, forget the Lauren Ibsen thirty thousand cartons that's gone wasted. I might miss my production run now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wait, 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 wait. Because yeah. that's a monumental mistake. Yeah, yeah, someone yeah. someone left the stock text yeah, on yeah, the yeah. carton. It was just like right over it. Like, oh, oh that's a... Oh, and like, and you have to like remember, like we're all human. So I have to, as a CEO, I can't raise my voice and get angry. Yeah, I have to yeah, find yeah. a solution. So I listened to that and I'm like, my first response wasn't, who did it? Why? How do we do this? I want money back. It was okay, let's just use those cartons and make an amazing installation. Let's use them for um, discounted products and we'll just explain it and for DTC only. Let's make another run. How quickly can we do it? Is that's that, what you have to that do. That kind of skill set, do you reckon that's something that you've had to teach yourself whilst being CEO? Or it, have you always been quite calm and collected? No, I think I had to teach myself, but I think how I've done it is my first main interaction with a failure was that year of okay. university. And I think yeah. that you know, I was in tears. I was really like in dark moments. And there was a moment where at that time, that was my reality. I remember even like, you know, thinking about it. It was a very rare, like very, very rare moment for me to go that deep into myself. Mm. But I was like, that's all I knew. I spent, you know, I spent my whole school years after school at 6 p.m. going to tuition. Saturday, two hours in the morning, tuition. Sunday, two hours in the morning, tuition to get my A stars. And then being the only one out of all my friends failing and everyone goes the year ahead. And second year, I was like, what is it like? Like I'm done, right? Which I think also, by the way, credit to you because I think a lot of people, I wasn't very academic in school. Mm. I kind of was able to get by up to a certain point just by being like myself. But then after a while, it was like, you have to study to get through. And I think a lot of people will hear that someone got 10 A stars and be like, oh yeah, but he was probably just like a super smart kid and was really like two hours before school and two hours after school. After a whole school Mainly day. just after school, but, but yeah, and weekends as well. But, oh, so yeah, yeah. Well, that's still a lot. <laughs> that's <laughs> still a lot. <laughs> over like yeah. I wouldn't do before. Yeah. yeah. But, but, but generally speaking, it was because I think I remember like when I was eight years old, I was in school and I was like, I'm not that smart. Like I wasn't getting things. So I said like, I went to mom and I was like, I'm not that good. Like, how do I get better? And she's like, okay, I'll put you in extra tuition. And then I just yeah. got better from the extra help. And then I got all my grades. Um, but yeah, so like, you know, failing then and having myself to realize actually this like I can decide to make this like armor building like I'm going to get stronger like how do I change my mindset to be like this is so uncomfortable this is so scary this is Mm. so like sad but actually this could be an opportunity Mm. because why shouldn't I make my mind believe this is an opportunity Mm. to you know make this an advantage to make this a lesson and hopefully come out stronger in it Mm. that is what we all want and we all know anyway with time you heal so do i challenge my today self where i'm so distraught or do i actually go further and think about okay in two weeks time i won't be thinking about this as much let's go there quicker Mm. let's find a solution let's move on so it feels a little bit like psychotic the way sometimes even my team are like 
what? Like you're you're fine. I'm like, solution. Let's go. And I love yeah. puzzles. I love escape rooms. So for me, I'm like, it's right, like a yeah. game. I'm like, we have to find it. Maybe it's my inner engineer too. Um, so I kind of have so many failures that I actually look for secretly forward to because I'm like, I'm learning. I'm going to grow. And I'm, okay, yeah, that's thirty thousand cardinals today. At least I won't be doing three hundred thousand cardinals in the future because I now have a system mm. in place to check, double check my graphic design on all my cartoons, right? Mm. So I, I wouldn't even go back and change that because wow. maybe yeah, I would yeah. do it again in the future. Mm. So everything happens sort of for a reason that you might not see today, you might not ever see, you might not even ever see in your lifetime, but there probably is a reason for it. I think it's quite common though. I mean, with the people that we've spoken to on this podcast, a lot of them do have the same attitude towards failure of trying to embrace it and trying to understand that actually that's when you learn the most and yeah. to really not say you know, no. And also and just getting situation. on with a solution. And getting like on with a And you know what? As a founder, as CEO, as people that your company looks up to and you need to, you, you have to have this mindset. Mm. And I'm not one to really listen to like motivational speakers and stuff. So even me saying, I'm not trying to be a motivational speaker in it. It's more like, that's my safety mechanism to deal with it because there's so many things every day that rock up in my inbox I didn't even foresee. Mm. Um, and if I don't have that attitude and that protective mechanism on myself, I will not survive as a founder. Like I cannot, like mm. I need to train my brain to to adapt and think of it like as a solution mechanism, not as a, oh my God, giving up mechanism. It's funny, I feel like I've experienced that in the past few weeks. Obviously we only launched fairly recently and yeah. I think even experiencing that, I felt the same thing of like when things have cropped up, they're unexpected. It's like, okay, you take five seconds of being like, what the hell is this? But then immediately it's like, okay, let's just get on with it and find, find a way to fix it. Yeah. Was there a specific, um, I'm sure this is different for, for everyone, but was there a specific, uh, when starting, area that was maybe more troublesome or harder to get over the hump than others? So was it like product formulation or marketing or getting the branding right or, you know, that kind of thing? So I think, okay, generally speaking, with anyone anyone's creating something, the areas you'll find the most trouble is areas you have the lack of expertise in or experience in. So um, things like uh, team and, and in co-foundership is so important because you can tag team on that. So for me, like I would have normally felt very, very lacking in that kind of formula and lab and product area. That's not my speciality, mm. but my sister is the genius behind it. She's the one who's created all the products and I can actually feel like, okay, I don't have to worry about that. Yeah. She's got that. So at the beginning, I think the hardest part was the areas that I think we didn't have enough team in. Maybe we couldn't afford one yet or we just didn't prioritize it enough. So things like finance, legal, those things are a little bit trickier because you would get like very early, like a trademark infringement, this and that. And you're like, oh my God, how do I deal with this? I don't, I don't know how to read T's and C's properly. Like, yeah. am I doing it right? And you didn't really want to swallow like a $10,000 legal lawyer fee. So you're like, I'll figure it out myself. Um, and yeah, that was harder at that time, but now like, you know, I've, I can afford those people and those, mm -hmm. those areas, but I will say like, um, at the beginning, like there is importance of investing in, in anything that you feel you don't have expertise. It's probably worth an investment, but as long as you spend time listening and learning with that, whatever, if it's a consultant, if it's a full-time employee. So I sat down with my CFO who joined a bit later and I was like, I, act as if I understand a PL, I have no freaking clue. Walk them through every single line and teach me. And then, like, I don't even mind acting silly in front of him and saying, but explain that again. Like, okay, I have three apples and I have one apple. And yeah. Like, yeah, yeah. Go that wow. deep. And then later we can go to the more harder terms like whack and stuff. And I'm like, now nah, I got it. And now I could probably do a course in finance and like an accountancy. And do and all right. Mm. Just because I've asked the right questions. Such a big believer in that. And that's even worth that investment. We pay to go to university why not like, you know, you're paying this person to work for the company, but why not learn from them too? Okay. Completely. And I think yeah. ego gets in the way so much of that, yeah. which is that like, oh, I don't think I'm stupid. And it's like, no, ask a million questions yeah. if you have to. I think that's so important. And make time to ask it. It's Completely. very important. People go like, I'm too busy with other stuff. Like, no, you have time mm. to ask and listen. Like now, like I've even put in the, uh, like uh, the amount of times I've heard people uh, talk about graphic design. I've said to my graphic designers, you have two now full time. I said, I want everyone in the room um, once a week and you're going to do an Adobe Photoshop Illustrator course like for everyone and teach us all. Mm. Like, wow. you know, and that's things where also it's like a perk, right? For anyone working in my company, they can learn from mm. each other. And it's kind of like a startup because you learn yeah. all those different skills. Yeah, exactly. Definitely. I was going to say, how did you how did you form your culture or build your culture in your business as you started to hire people and build the, build the brand? Because that's yeah. something that's a lot of the time quite hard to maintain Definitely. And, and build. So how did you do that? I think like I'll, I'll give myself, I, I tend to like, 
downplay a few things. I will say, like, I'm I'm a really good people person. I think that's one of my big skill sets as, as a cash. And I think that's helped me be a great manager in, in my career at Dior and, and building my team mm-hmm. now, which is nearly 30, 40 people. I tend to feel like that's probably creation of my own experiences of either having really bad managers, knowing what I don't want, having some great mentors in my life that have inspired me to be who I want to be. And then also, I think age has been something that has always been something I've been very, I don't know, like I've had a bit of a battle with, right? Because in my jobs at Dior, I've always been uh, quite young for my role. Mm-hmm. And that's often been a point where people are not afraid to tell you, you're way too young, you can't be good. And I was always hiding my age, I was always adding a few more years. And I thought, started to realize like, okay, like how do I now react and interact with people that I'm managing someone who's a couple of years older than me. And often that is a problem in work in the workplace is this ego battle of yeah. age. Yeah. So now today, like, yeah, I'm you know, 28 and 29 soon. And uh, I manage people um, of all ages and all experiences and 30, 40 years experience in the industry. But how do I make sure I still can balance a culture where it's not about my ego, their ego, it's about the company. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I think it's a mixture of doing good at my job, helps me have mm. legitimacy in everything. Like no one can question my age then if I do good. Mm. Um, give everyone the opportunity to be heard and listened to and build it with them because it's not, if it's just my vision, they won't ever feel this culture and they need to feel it's a total vision. And I think just not forgetting like having fun is so important. Um, yeah, totally. So like we I'm do a lot of fun, fun things. And I think I kind of put myself as a worker as well. How would I want to be treated? Yeah. If I was in the company? Um, just because I'm conscious of time, I know you've got a meeting to get to. Uh, and also the last time we talked business, we were going to like three in the morning. So we could literally talk for hours. Yeah. Um, but I think uh, the last question that we like to ask all of our guests is, um, as you know, premise of this podcast Mm. um is to go into the nitty-gritty and the practical which you have done amazingly i mean there's been so much gold in this interview um if there was one piece of advice that you could give someone listening who's either just started a business or is thinking of starting a business one tangible practical piece of advice you know less sort of hard work believe in yourself set goals Mm. more like you know hiring budget anything uh marketing whatever it might be uh what's one piece of advice that you might give i think one thing i do as a ceo and a founder um and it's such a basic advice, but you often don't see people like founders or CEOs doing this, is write daily to-do lists. And it's, uh, some, it's so simple. Like I used to go in all my CEOs' rooms like when I was called for meetings and I never saw a to-do list on, on the table. Yeah. And often it's because they have so many people around them that you know, do things for them. Um, but I think it's so important to, and I do it on a piece of paper. I don't do it on an iPad or a tech guy. I, sh- I shouldn't, but I don't. I like to have it tangible in front of me. I write down every day a realistic to-do list and I cross out throughout the day mm. and I like to tear it up at the end and throw it in the dustbin. <laughs> and I don't leave the office ideally until I finish that. But that's why it's so important to set it realistically, not put everything that you need to do for the whole week. Like just put. And I think honestly, it puts structure. It makes you feel way more organized and also makes sure the business is more organized. And you also have this sense of accountability, I think, which is needed at every level yeah and it also shows your team that you're working completely yeah yeah. completely akash this has been an amazing conversation um let everyone know where can they find you fable and main and your own stuff founder beauty plug away my friend oh thanks so much guys loved the conversation as well and yeah so my my personal instagram is uh meta underscore a so it's m-e-h-t-a underscore a uh dm me anytime ask for any advice i'll i'll definitely reply and then um if not my brand is fable and main so it's F-A-B-L-E-A-N-D-M-A-N-E. And you can find us at most retailers like Sephora, Selfridges, Cop Beauty Boots, all that kind of stuff. And definitely if you want to try one product, try the hair oil and uh, you will, your hair will thank you later. Wow. <laughs> uh, wow. An amazing conversation. Akash, you're a great friend and an even better guest. So that was amazing. Um, guys, what an amazing conversation. Uh, if you enjoyed it, make sure to rate us five stars on whatever audio platform you're listening to. Uh, and if you're on YouTube, make sure to subscribe and hit the post notification uh, so you never miss anything that we've got coming out. We've got some amazing conversations coming. Uh, and this was a perfect example of what we, what we have uh, coming up. So thank you. We hope you enjoyed. Uh, and Akash, thanks again for being here, man. Thanks Pleasure. a lot. Cheers. Take care.